Podcast. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. All right, listeners, hello and welcome to another outstanding episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got an amazing guest lined up for you all today, Dr. Judy Lubin. Uh, Dr. Lubin, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Earl. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited to have this conversation that we're about to have here. But listeners, uh, what you need to know about Dr. Lubin is that she is a nationally recognized thought leader, researcher, and change catalyst with over 20 years of experience working at the intersections of racial equity, social policy, and public health. Drawing on her deep belief in the power of everyday people to transform systems and institutions and to build just and sustainable communities, she has dedicated her career to working nationally and locally, drive meaningful change across sectors including health, housing, and urban planning and community development. She previously served as health equity strategist for the New Orleans Health Department, director for Allies for Reaching Community Health Equity, and as communications director for national organizations including the Black Women's Health Imperative and Women Heart, the National Coalition for Women with Heart Disease. Committed to promoting women's heart health and wellness, Dr. Lubin is also the author of The Heart Living Well, Six Principles for a Life of Health, Beauty, and Balance, and a recipient of the General Mills Foundation's Cheerios Sisters Saving Hearts Award for her heart and style initiative to prevent heart disease among black women. She is also a former Congressional Black Caucus Foundation Public Health Fellow. As if that's not impressive enough, she is frequently called upon by media for her expertise on race, politics, health, and social policy, and was a regular contributor to the Huffington Post. She has been featured in national media outlets such as CNN, Ebony, Essence, The Hill, The Wall Street Journal, NPR, The New York Times, City Lab, and Market Watch. As a sought-after speaker, she presented at TEDx Mid-Atlantic, and has spoken at the White House in addition to many other nationwide appearances. She is currently president of CURE, the Center for Urban and Racial Equity. Now, I wanted to make sure that I got as much of that into this bio as possible so you all could understand how impressive the lady is that we're about to have this conversation with. Um, And it makes me very excited to hear uh, how you're going to answer that first question where I start off all my guests, Dr. Lubin. When you hear the words responsible leadership, what does that look like to you? Such a great question, Earl, Um, particularly at this moment of change and transformation that I think we all know that we're experiencing, not just in terms of the the amount of change uh, that the pandemic has uh, demanded of each of us, not just individually, but the adaptations that we've had to had to have made uh, have to have made socially and and uh, within our organizations and 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 workplaces across the board. And so this question about what is responsible leadership um, is is such an interesting one, particularly in the work um, that I do with our with our uh, client partners and and organizations that are really. Um, coming to us and asking us, how do we actualize and make real equity, racial equity, diversity, inclusion? And that's coming from a sense of responsibility um, and awareness that from a position of leadership, 
that something more is needed and required, right, to create inclusive and equitable organizations, workplaces, communities, and and nations, and we could even say globally, right? We want um, more equity um, and more inclusion. We want to eliminate uh, inequities and injustices so that we all, each of us, uh, have the opportunity, the fair opportunity, um, to to live quality lives and to and to thrive. And so, when I think about responsible leadership, I think about a, a number of principles that here at Cure we um, uh, sort of lump together under this umbrella called inclusive leadership. Um, and so, 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 so for me, responsible leadership is is inclusive leadership, uh, being able to authentically uh, listen and collaborate with diverse stakeholders. Uh, and so, so a lot of that, you know, for us means deep listening, right? Being able to sort of uh, take a step back, pause and acknowledge that I may not know. <laughs> uh, there's a lot that I don't know, right? Even in a position of leadership, say even within an organization or a business or institution, there's a lot that I do know, but there's an awful lot that I don't know <laughs> as well, right? And so how am I creating space to make sure that I am listening deeply to the range of stakeholders that, uh, are, that I am responsible to, right? That my leadership is responsible and accountable uh, to. And so, so deep listening being critical part of, of responsible leadership I would also say cultural humility is is part of responsible leadership and inclusive leadership is in that recognition of knowing that there's so much more there's so much more for me to integrate and to adapt um, my own leadership style is that I have to be humble right and I have to be willing to learn from others who don't look like me, who may not have the same lived experience as uh, myself, who may have a different economic, social, racial, and ethnic uh, background, different abilities, different, um, say, say, experiences around immigration, that the range of diversity that we know exists uh, across our humanity means that there is a need for, always a need for cultural humility and then I would I would say lastly, responsible leadership is it requires power sharing. It requires always thinking about how am I distributing power, how am I sharing uh, power so that I'm making space and creating opportunities for those that entrust entrusted my leadership to be leaders as well, right? That leadership is a shared uh, process, right? Which is sometimes a, a little different from a lot of the ways in which we've been taught about leadership, right? Is that if you are a leader, right? We often think about leadership as something that we practice as, as individuals, which is certainly true. Uh, but when I think about power sharing, it's, it's, it's a concept that's asking, that's asking us to think about uh, how do we build leaderful, organizations and businesses and institutions. And so power sharing is part of that um, uh, a process of, of building leaderful um, communities, leaderful workplaces where everyone has a voice, where they are valued, their contributions are integral to the success of an organization or an endeavor. And that um, we see ourselves as collect, working collectively to advance a shared uh, vision or goal. Mm. I I really like that. Uh, I really like that breakdown there. That that was a great response to that question, uh, and I like a lot of the stuff you said, especially where you started there, because uh, you, you talked in in the beginning of that answer about. Uh, what we know and what we don't know. And it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And I think maybe he kind of paraphrased, stole it from someone else. Uh, but he says, um, 
as the as the areas of our knowledge expand, so do the perimeters of our ignorance. And I think right. that's just such a beautiful way to kind of look at that because you know, as we become more aware, we have to realize that there are these things at play that we d- we don't know, that we're not aware of. And I think that and and I'm really interested to hear your your take on it. But I think that's where we have trouble with society right now coming to grips with uh, this word systemic and all of these problems that you talk about. Right. That's right. Yeah. So much that we we don't know. Right. And that we (laughs) we need to know, you know, part of uh, some of the trainings that we um, used to do frequently with organizations that would bring us in to help with. Um, with, with racial equity is is this, this we would integrate I, I don't know, you know your audience might be familiar with this idea of uh, or with this tool called the Jahari window um, and 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 it's a it's such an interesting tool and it's, it's sort of set up as a as this diagram um, where you're prompted to think about what are the things that you know and that are known to others and then it moves you along and then asks you, what are the things that um, are known to others but are unknown to yourself? And then what are the what are the things that are you know you that are known to yourself and that are unknown to others? And then where folks really get tripped up is what are those things that are unknown to me, to myself, and what are those things that are unknown to others? <laughs> mm. Right? And so so it, it you know I, 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 I'm laughing and smiling now because I remember doing getting to that that last column <laughs> and, and 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 folks struggling with okay well what are the things that I don't know and that maybe my colleagues don't know either um, and so that would make for interesting dialogue and discussion especially as we're discussing racial equity and, and, and other systemic inequities and injustices, but the whole sort of Jahari um, window exercise overlaid with questions about racial equity, diversity, and inclusion, we found to be very powerful, not only as an exercise for individuals, but also for, for groups is that Particularly in the past couple of years, at least here in the in the in the United States, where we had um, the, the the racial justice uprisings in response to um, the murders of of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and and others, right? That that those protests and also the the demands for accountability, um, not just in in changes and shifts to uh, the practice of, of, of policing in this country, but accountability and shifts in practices across organizations, institutions, government, businesses. Um, and, and so that, that whole conversation, um, we've been calling the racial reckoning, right? Some may be familiar with that term, is that that whole conversation has opened up these spaces for people to, to say, I don't know, or that hasn't been part of my experience. Um, you know, as, as as if you know, for for folks who who have not had to deal, you know, with systemic inequities or injustices, right? That that has required some humility, some some sort of pausing and and recognizing, and and some reflexivity and um, authentic reflection, and saying that. I, I don't know, or I didn't know, I, I didn't realize that, um, or maybe I, I was purposefully ignorant, right? Because sometimes um, choosing to disconnect to issues that may not have impact you individually is a convenience, right? That um, folks who, who don't experience that level of inequity and injustice uh, doesn't have don't have to engage with right unless it's sort of brought to your 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 doorstep or within your your organization and your your workplace, and so that has been happening the past few years right is that uh, particularly uh, black and brown and indigenous uh, people and and workers have been saying okay 
since we are in the in the in this moment where you had so many corporations in particular put out statements and saying black lives matter and we support um, the movement for change and that we're going to start with ourselves <laughs> right and, and so I think for a lot of people, they didn't realize what saying starting with ourselves really meant. And the amount of, of, uh, of, of, of real truth telling that that would require. And that's part of uncovering what we don't know and recognizing um, the growth that we all have to um, under, undergo, right? Individually, uh, organizationally, uh, institutionally and systemically, right? Really sort of thinking about these at, at levels is how do we shift, how do we create the shift and the change so that we're able to create new systems, policies, and practices that reflect the values that we want to see um, realized, right? So that we don't see the level of injustices and uh and, and it's across the board right from the the, the in, uh, inequalities right in, in income and housing accessibility and afford affordability the health inequities right that became so clear as a result of covid right that when we first started having when covid first appeared it was common to hear people say well, this is an equal, COVID is an equal opportunity illness, right? And then as time went on, it became clear that, yes, while we were all at risk, but some groups, right, that were already experiencing racial and economic and social um, injustices were being hit the hardest um, as a result of, of COVID. And so, um, you know, it's, this is such an important point for us, right, where we're thinking about how do we really create a more just world, right? And it starts with each of us and it starts with each of our organizations, our workplaces. Um, and so the, the invitation, I think, of this moment is for us to, to, to say, how do we learn together? Yeah. How do we learn and how do we create change uh, together? And I think that's really um, an exciting moment right as we're starting to see right small shifts and changes and practices new policies being implemented to try to target some of these long-stemming um, inequities but we have a long way to go and and so these conversations and the, the the trainings that we do at cure the the work that we 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 do with helping people to be able to analyze policies and practices sometimes um, they don't, on the surface, that may not seem like they're um, creating to uh, or contributing to in inequity. And then we sort of help people to peel back the layers to be able to see, okay, we could do this differently, right? And if we did this differently, maybe we would see the uh, uh, more diversity and representation amongst our staff and our leadership team, or maybe we do a better job of serving uh, underserved communities. Yeah, no, that, that, that is a lot, again, a lot of good information that you, you shared there. And, you know, there were so many things raced around in my mind as, as you were talking there, like the, you know, that, that systemic piece again, that we kept coming back to and people not understanding why some of these things are the way they are right now, like with health and whatnot. Um, I remember reading, I want to say it was in Forbes. I'm going to find the article and, and link it here in the show notes, but uh, the the title of the article was uh, debunking the myth that African Americans can't swim, and the article went into a lot of great detail, uh, talking about how um, how society in general got into this infatuation with swimming, the timing of it post World War II. Uh, they they talked about redlining and things like that, and how. You know, that post-war boom that we got in the 50s um, when swimming came on was not something that, 
the African-American community was able to take advantage of because these pools were being put into white neighborhoods and, uh, you know, black people weren't welcome in those neighborhoods at the time. And there wasn't money in the communities to put pools in the black communities because redlining, isolating them into the poorer areas, lower tax base, not having these things available. And that just led to it never really becoming a part of African-American culture. And so this myth that black people can't swim kind of grew out of this this system and series of policies that just made it not part of black culture. And, and I, I, I remember reading that thinking, wow, yeah, this is something so simple as, as swimming, but these policies have made it such an issue to this day. And you talk about health. Um, you know, I had uh, Chief uh, Jason Armstrong on here who was the uh, prior police chief of Ferguson, Missouri. He's moved to uh, uh, North Carolina now and taking a job there. But he made a great point because we were talking during the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, well, I guess we're still in the pandemic uh, for the most part right now. But he made a great point during our conversation, and, and this was one um, – that, that I don't know how many people really considered. I know I didn't. Uh, but we were talking about what, what you just mentioned about how, uh, you know, black people were being kind of disproportionately hit, uh, by COVID. And he brought up a point of, you know, the, the wearing of masks, right? And he said, the, the thing I get to push back on the most is as a police chief, when I'm talking, uh, he's an African American gentleman. Uh, he said, when I'm talking to folks saying, hey, mask up, they look at me and say, you know, look, chief, it's it's hard enough for me as as a black man to walk into a convenience store and not feel like I'm being watched. Mm-hmm. How safe do you think I feel putting on a mask and walking into a convenience store and, and not thinking that somebody's going to be thinking I'm there to rob the place? And and I guess I, I share those two stories there just kind of kind of highlight what you're talking about, because those are those types of level of 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 thinking and empathizing that we really need to do to kind of fully understand these issues as a society. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really appreciate you bringing up um, the historical aspect around why you see disparities in, 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 in black Americans being able to, to swim, right? And I think that's so important, right? As we're taking each issue, um, reg- regardless of whatever issue that you're working on, right? Being able to draw those historical connections and to understand, right? When we say systemic, right? It's, you can trace the history um, of these inequities, right? Like they don't just appear, <laughs> right? That, that they're uh, the result of processes and practices and a history of those processes and or practices that then result in um, these inequities that can be, become very deeply um, embedded and, and part of the realities, um, reality of uh, day-to-day life um, for, for people living at the, the margins of, of society in your example, certainly Black folks, right? And, and that that history of, of, of complete segregation, right? And, and Jim Crow policies and, and, and the structure of racism, right? Such that um, black, fo- black people weren't able to access swimming pools. And not only weren't they able to access them in, in, in white communities, they weren't available um, in black communities as well. When we look at health, right? We, the history of, of he- healthcare access in the U.S. was was the same, right, and, and, and very limited access to healthcare. And, and when we started, um, and when there was availability of of black doctors, they weren't able to join medical associations. Um, and and there was a time where you had to be a part of the American Medical Association and able to, in order to be able to um, have hospital pri- admitting privileges. Um, at the at the local level, right? You had to be a part of the local um, medical society, and 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 black doctors were not able to 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 be a part of those societies, and so they didn't have the ability to admit their black patients 
to, to hospitals. And then my, my dissertation covers a, a quite a bit of this, this history, right? So it was not uncommon for Black people in, in emergency situations to go to a hospital that, that served white patients and to die at the doorstep of those hospitals because they would not be um, admitted or they would um, be relegated to, um, to, to lower um, quality care, they'd be treated in, 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 in hallways. Um, and so, so there's that, 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 that history that while we don't have those extreme situations uh, today, but those, those, those practices over time, right, that the bias and the racism, um, although it, 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 it's not overt, right, some of that then becomes embedded and infused within culture, within our culture and in society in, in subtle and in, in, in explicit ways. And so when, when, when COVID hit in particular, there, there, there was this concern, especially when, when there was limited testing available um, and limited hospital beds available, right? That we were going to see, and to a certain extent, we started to see some of those same patterns, right? Where the location of testing sites, for example, were um, located primarily in the early days, right? Those first few months of COVID were located predominantly in white, um, wealthier and middle-class um, uh, communities. And so we're seeing those same patterns repeat themselves. And so it's so important for us to understand the, the history so that we can recognize what we're experiencing today, right? And, and, and to be able to recognize those patterns and to, to name, not only name them, but to actively and proactively um, work to avoid and prevent those types of injustices from continuing. Yeah, no, that again, um, extremely valuable points there. And, and uh, so much, <laughs> so much like I, uh, I know we're only going to be here for about 40, 45 minutes today, and we're already about halfway through that time. But, you know, folks, uh, I want to really focus on that last piece uh, that Dr. Lubin kind of highlighted there. And you all know that I'm a big fan of history on here. And I try to share a lot of these things, but I think for me, uh, you know, that is the one piece that that I really have issue with with uh, this this kind of movement uh, against what is being called critical race theory. We we most people now know that that's nowhere near what it is. That that's not the type of class that's being taught. But it's it's teaching these histories, and they're they're uncomfortable. Um, they they should make people feel uncomfortable so we don't make those same mistakes over and over and over uh, because they do lead to these systemic issues. I was chatting with a lady early on in this uh, uh, podcast. Uh, I want to say like in the somewhere in the 40s, 50th episode range who her background was in um, lending. And she was talking on there about how, you know, this was in 2000. Uh, I think her story took place in 2015, 16, somewhere there. Um, and she'd been in home lending for years. Uh, she just found out about this, the, the practice of redlining and, and why that certain areas still can't qualify for, for loans to this day. Not because necessarily redlining is still a law. It, it's not necessarily still a, a common practice, but those um, behaviors, those those patterns, the repetition of what had been done for so many years has persisted. And, you know, the, the sad thing about it is if you don't know that these things happen, when somebody challenges you on it, it's very easy to sit back and say, yeah, no, this is not a this is not rooted in racism. This is not rooted in anything. And you would be for you, you would be 100 percent correct because you don't understand the history of the policies. You don't understand why this community is economically depressed. You don't understand why the students in this area uh, go to schools that are understaffed, underfunded, under-equipped. Um, 
And until we understand those policies, we're not really going to be able to come to grips with it. And I think that's really what this movement about teaching whole history um, it is about, is filling that gap so we can make better decisions going forward and really repair some of these systemic issues. Uh, does that sound like a fair assessment or am I off base there? No, you are right on right on point. And, you, you know, you're hitting on a number of different as you were as I was listening to you, I was thinking, which which one do I want to do? I want to build more off of like, and <laughs> you know, just just so important. Right. Like the whole conversation about critical race theory. I mean, that's a whole separate show um, within itself. <laughs> and at the same time, right, like. I'm glad that you brought it up because it's 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 such a dangerous movement that's happening right now, where, um, and and and, I, and for me it's 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 a backlash, right? It's a regressive movement. The attack on critical race theory, the attack on um, teaching Black history, attacks on teaching ethnic studies, and now it's moved into um, attacks on teaching about and talking about uh, LGBTQ uh, experiences, right? And so there's so many um, lessons, if you will, um, embedded in this um, anti-critical race theory movement right now. Um, and, and one of them that stands out for me is is that old saying is that to, you know, if people know it in, in, in different forms, right, is, is, you know, today they're coming for me, but tomorrow they're coming for you, right? And it's, you know, we, we're seeing it, right, across the, the board, right, where it, it's, gonna, it's gonna get to the point where we can't talk about any sort of human difference, right? And, and that is scary, right? We, we don't get to a place of, inclusion of equity of honoring the humanity of each of us if we can't talk about honor acknowledge uh and celebrate the 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 beauty and the uh, of the the beauty and the power of the diversity uh that we all bring you know whether it's uh it's racial and ethnic diversity gender uh d- diversity diversity uh, 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 and, and representation of LGBTQ folks, of of disabled people, and and so it's it's a it's a scary movement, right? That is trying to essentially silence, um, silence, silence important voices, um, erase history, um, and 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 stall progress, right? And so it's not a coincidence that this is happening as a result, as a reaction, a reactionary response to um, real concerted effort that's happening, right, across institutions, be it within schools, within businesses, in 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 in, in legis- legislatures, to really try to do something, right? Um, and 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 so you know, it's important that we see. Um, the reality of what is trying to be accomplished with this movement against um, critical race theory, right? And so it's spilled over into not wanting to teach, you know, trying to prevent teaching of of historical wrongs, right? That, you know, we (laughs) believe that we are all strong enough, right? To to sit with the truth of, of history, right? So that we don't repeat history and so that we can, um, you know, move the arc of justice in the direction, in the positive, in the direction that we, we, we want to move the arc of history, right, to the extent that we can, right, as individuals, as um, uh, 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 communities and, and businesses, right, that there, there is that recognition that we are in an interesting and pivotal moment, and and what, what, what wins out, you know, may 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 foretell the future. Um, and there was something else that you mentioned that I wanted to <laughs> to build off of, but but that's okay. Maybe that's my cue to stop talking. <laughs> 
Oh no, I'm sure it'll, uh, if your brain works like mine, it'll hit you here in, in, in a little bit. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, are you familiar with a gentleman, uh, named, um, uh, well, his rank was Lieutenant Colonel, but, uh, he, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman. I'm not, the name's not, this isn't, doesn't ring a bell. So he's, um, he's an interesting individual. He, he's somebody who I, I feel sorry for because his legacy is kind of being hijacked, if you will, by, you know, some kind of, uh, white supremacist, white power groups because, um, but, but in reality, if you look into what he teaches, uh, he's actually 180 degrees out from anything that they stand for. Uh, but he's, um, army guy, um, uh, psychologist. Well, at least he, he studied psychology. I don't know if he ever became a certified psychologist, but he wrote a great book in the nineties, uh, called on killing. And, and basically what he wanted to do was he wanted to answer the question, how is it that one human being can kill another? You know, he made all these observations about how in nature, almost every animal out there will go out of their way to not kill one of their kind, unless it's a life or death situation. And he started going through history and started analyzing all these battles, started analyzing all these confrontations. And uh, the the basis of it is the only way that a human being can kill another human being, short of there being some type of mental issue, uh, you know, psychopath, sociopath, that sort of thing, is you have to stop seeing that person as a human being. That's why we create racial, uh, racial slurs. That's why we uh, marginalize communities to make them feel less than because that's a mechanism to make you uh, help you see them as not human so you can treat them poorly and eventually be able to do some of the sick and disgusting things that we've seen, like put your knee on somebody's neck for eight minutes until they die. Uh, that was a great situation of somebody not seeing somebody else as a human being, having compassion and empathy uh, with George Floyd. Uh, but, you know, I think that in and of itself is an extremely valuable point from his book about how we view our fellow uh, human beings. But the other point he goes on to make, and I thought this was a very interesting tie in here. This is why I wanted to bring it up with your work with, you know, heart health, because in his book on killing, he kind of talks about some of the uh, the periphery side effects of this type of society where people are being marginalized, people are being made to feel less than, people are being made to feel like they're not human. They're always concerned because they know, we instinctually know that that is kind of the path to having bad things happen to you. Your stress levels rise, your cortisol levels uh, get out of control. And he mentions in his book, the higher rate of uh, heart disease, heart attacks, and all sorts of heart issues kind of in the African-American community as a result of that. And uh, yeah, I think it's a really great book uh, on killing. It's got a off-putting title. I kind of wish you'd given it a better title, but yeah, it, it gives a great understanding of some of the, these issues. And I'm kind of uh, curious, like with your work in those spaces, like how much have you seen that be a reality? Yeah, it's 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 uh, the crux of more particularly the early part of my career was focused on on health equity and you know really centering on the impacts of structural racism, the health impacts of structural racism. You know, I started off um, you know my career, I I, I got a, a a bachelor's in psychology and realized I didn't want to. I was I was not I would make a terrible psychologist. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I was interested in social conditions and particularly the, the links between, um, health, right. Social and economic inequities and, and why, um, black communities and communities of color were experiencing, um, the worst health in this country, right. And that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't what we were taught, which was that health was, attribute our health as to, to individual behavior and and genetics, right? But then when we sort of apply this systemic lens and analysis and, and sociological um, perspective, right, we're able to see the links that um, the, the, you know, from pretty much every 
major cause of death um, for um, for for black people. They're they're tied to um, our living conditions and our our realities that are tied to systemic inequities and uh, injustices and the stress um, that um, we then embody as a result of the 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 gamut of 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 inequities, right? That you know when you look at um, housing, and you mentioned some of the the history of racism in in housing in this country, right? And that um, continues being able to access quality, affordable housing, being able to access quality, um, cultural, culturally um, proficient uh, healthcare, right? Um, racism and bias you experience in the workplace and in the, the labor market um, and in, in education systems, in um, policing and, and law enforcement encounters, right? And so all of that adds up. All of that day-to-day stress adds up and chips away at our body, right? Like there is a mountain of evidence and research on how stress contributes to poor health, right? Um, not only you know the your acute physiological um, psycho um, somatic responses to 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 an immediate stressful event, but also just over time, right? What chronic stress can do and 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 predispose you to um, obesity and um, uh, uh, heart disease and, and and diabetes and other chronic uh, conditions. And so this recognition now, right, that, you know, racism is a public health issue, right? When I was going through public health school almost 20 years ago, 22 years ago, right, it was still sort of like this niche conversation that was happening in public health. But certainly over the past couple of years, there's been more open discussion and I think just even more more broadly, not just in in in, in public health and, and medical spaces, right? That that racism is something that isn't just something that makes people feel bad, right? Like that it has real material consequences for people on a day-to-day um, basis and particularly your own sense of safety as you walk around in a neighborhood or go into a store while you're while you're shopping your ability to go into a restaurant and enjoy a meal with your with your family and and to be be treated like uh other patrons right and and so not only does it you know impact health but our, our sense of 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 dignity and and humanity right and so so when we when we think about like you know health and and healthcare right that you know for a long time folks were like well there's no racism in medicine right doctors you know take an oath to you know do no harm you know and do no harm to, regardless of who the patient is but we we've already touched on some of the the, the history of of medical racism. Um, um, in this country, and when we, we you know, that that and that that goes deep, right? In terms of the experimentation on enslaved um, people, let alone the 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 the, the Jim Crow healthcare that was part of um, the history, right? That denied um, Black people access to medical education, denied Black people access to um, uh, 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 hospital care. Um, to 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 surgeries, you you know we can go across the board, um, and so that's that's led to mistrust, right? A, a history of 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 mistrust, you know, well-founded mistrust and questioning of of institutions, including including medicine, um, and so I, I love how we come back to history. <laughs> Again, right, because, you know, we can't escape the history, right? We can't escape the realities that the history has um, created. 
And at the same time, right, like while we're sitting with the realities that continue to exist on a day-to-day basis for Black and Brown and Indigenous people, right, is wow, we are in an important transformative moment, right? Never, (laughs) right? Have we had the types of conversations about race and racial injustice, equity, uh, inclusion, liberation, right? New ways of thinking and envisioning, um, you know, different possibilities um, of, of how we can be with each other, of how our institutions and businesses can operate, right? And so as much as we necessarily focus and need to understand history, understand the systemic patterns and the lessons and the opportunities that they're providing, that there is, you know, such tremendous opportunity as well to create and build something new. And that's what excites me and the work that we, we've we been doing at Cure is the realization from so many across a spectrum of, of institutions that want to do right, right? That want to practice responsible leadership, right? And and a lot of the organizations that we, we work with, they're, they're led uh, predominantly, their, their leadership is predominantly white, right? Mm-hmm. And so part of that, this moment of responsible leadership and inclusive leadership is saying, how do we create the workplaces, the communities that really reflect um, our society, right? And that we really are creating um, opportunities for more um, of, of, of more openness, more um, inclusion, more contributions from the richness and the diversity that we have um, you know, not only in this country, but, but globally, right? That there's so much more that we could be um, building in and integrating within our practices, within our policies, within our, our organizational cultures, within our work environments, within our communities, right? And so right, while there is, you know, whenever you're seeing progress, there's going to be, be backlash and um, you know, a, a, a movement to, to, to stop the progress. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by all, the, by all the shifts that are happening, right? Even if they're slow, right? I, I just believe that when you have so many people focused collectively on the same thing, right, that want to really make racial equity and, and justice real, Right, that 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 something good and positive and meaningful has to come out of that momentum. Yeah, a hundred percent. I I share your optimism there. Um, well, Dr. Lubin, as I kind of suspected that this was gonna this time was gonna fly by here. We're sitting around a little over forty five minutes right now of uh, time and. I'm really kind of curious. We, we covered a lot of ground. We, we got into a lot of good places. And I really thank you for, for taking the discussion in some of those, uh, some of those places and, and helping educate uh, me and my listeners, uh, throughout this, this discussion. But is there anything that you didn't get a chance to talk about that you really want to leave listeners with before we close out? Thank you so much, Earl, for the time that we've 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 had. I I, I can tell we could go on <laughs> for 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 much longer. Um, I want to share our website. We're at urbanandracialequity.org. We have a report coming out, really a guide called "Charting the Journey: Strategies for Racial Equity Organizational Change," and we're sharing our process, our framework providing detailed guidance for a lot of what I just touched on and really broad strokes during our conversation. Our our guide is really um, designed for leaders that um, are really uh, reflecting on this moment and what responsible, inclusive leadership and equitable leadership means 
and um, we provide uh, lessons learned, their case studies, their tips and strategies and resources and links um, in our guide that's coming out on May uh, 23rd. And so invite your listeners to check out our, our website. You can follow us uh, on, on Twitter um, at equity underscore center. And my personal uh, Twitter handle is uh, my name, Judy, J-U-D-Y, L-U-B-I-N. Outstanding, and I'll make sure that uh, I'll make sure that those links get into the show notes there. And especially by the time the show airs, uh, that report will be out, and I'll I'll have a link directly to that in the show notes. So listeners, definitely go check that out um, and connect with uh, Doctor Lubin because uh, you know there's a lot of good information on the website, and uh, I'm sure uh, you'll find a lot of value being shared on on the social media there. Uh, Dr. Lubin, again, I really appreciate the conversation we had. I love your perspective. I love you having these conversations and kind of fostering those and, and making sure that they're being had. And again, just thank you very much for having this conversation with me and my uh, listeners on the Responsible Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Earl. Great conversation. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that... I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Nature Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us. From renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Pack podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric acid.